Hey brother Hear me now Brother dog Know me Understand Welcome to the Sargassum Podcast. My name is Robbie Thigpen. I'm Francisca Elmer. And I am Mar Fernandez. And we are your hosts for today. We're going to share with you the latest ideas and solutions about sargassum, which has become an international challenge. Hi, everyone. How's everybody doing this week? Hi, Fran. Everything fine here. Lots of snow finally in northern Germany. Last week it was really snowy in Spain, which was kind of weird. But now, now it's finally come to Germany where it should be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, me, I've just been doing regular old stuff. Same old, same old writing. Writing books in indigenous languages and stuff like that. You know, la historia de mi vida. Yes, and I actually went from Switzerland to Mexico, so now I'm not in the snow anymore, but I get to go to the beach almost every day and see some sargassum. True, and now that you talk about Mexico, we just uh, handed in this uh, proposal for collaboration with Mexico to work on sargassum carbon cycling, so let's hope that gets funded. Nice, nice. Yes. So our guest today is Xavier Diaz from Curaçao. He's a marine biology master's student at the University of Groningen in Holland. And he's researching the importance of healthy fish nursery habitats in Curaçao. He's also a board member and research coordinator at the Stichting Unique Curaçao, which is a volunteer community group that works towards heightening the life quality of the local residents. As part of this, they help with sargassum removal. Bon bini ano podcast, Javier. Masha danki, Francesca. My first question to you, which we ask everybody, is what is sargassum to you? So, uh... Different aspects for me, like from a scientific point of view, I find sargassum very interesting because sargassum by itself on the ocean doesn't pose direct threat for the coastline because it helps pelagic fish seek shelter as they go through their life cycle. So by in itself, it's a, you can see it as a nursery on the open water. It only becomes a problem when, it's, when it reaches the coastline. It affects mostly the, the regenic areas of the island. And then uh, for me, uh, growing up, I haven't experienced sargassum blooms as severe um, as it, we have been experiencing since 2014. That's where it really has been picking up. However, sargassum bloom events have occurred over the years because when you talk with fishermen on the north coast, because the north coast of Kyrgyzstan is the area that, that mostly get affected. It mostly has to do with the positioning of the island with the east coast uh, of the, the Kyrgyzstan being more south with the west coast, the west point of Kyrgyzstan being higher. So then because of the tilting of the island, the, it, the north coast gets affected. And uh, you hear these fishermen that, that these sargassum blooms have occurred throughout history already, but, I, but they've been recorded now to be more severely than they were in the past because they fill up bays, cause problems for turtles. So um, because it affects us in such a way, and tourism is the main thing for Curacao, um, aside from the oil refinery, but that's a whole different story that we won't go into. <laughs> but well, there's uh, always a leak, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's very important for us to maintain uh, 
the natural areas that we have on Curacao and sargasm being compacted in our bays, as you can see on my background image, is uh, can be a problem with Curacao. So for me, it's very important, both biologically, but also from a social aspect. Okay, and now that you're talking about the social aspect, um, you have been with uh, Stitch and Unicate Curacao for over 13 years. And can you tell us a little bit about the organization and what type of opportunities does the organization offer for young people? Yes. So, Stephanie Nikita, so as, as mentioned before, we always look towards the local people. But for us, it's important to connect local people with uh, the, the nature that we have on Curacao. Because we truly believe that if more people go out and enjoy the outdoors, they'll get a better appreciation of our environment. And in that way, they also take care of it a lot better, which pertains to, of course, littering and polluting of our environment. So then they get become more aware of their carbon footprint that they're leaving behind. So uh, Nikki or so, I started out uh, in 2007 in summer. I remember uh, being in high school and a buddy of mine, he was part of, of Stick Nikki or so. And if, if first started asking me if I was interested in joining him on one of these intern uh, Jeep tours which they take interns up and then show them the island. And uh, from there on, I learned more about, about uh, different aspects of the island because I didn't know much about the cave systems or the history. I or knew a lot of history, but then specific history for each site. That was very interesting. And then from then on, I volunteered as a park ranger where I would go out in the field and I would I make maps, I, I take GPS coordinates, and we, we make new products for people to be able to enjoy. We make hiking trails but even uh, sometimes assist uh, other groups of people in, in, the, in the woods. But uh, the opportunities that it would provide for the youth actually, because what I've, I've been there since I was in high school still. So I learned to network because you get to know a lot of people. But at the same time, I learned to value the island, learned to love the island that I grew up on. And uh, I encourage any, anybody to do volunteer work, not just for Stichty and Nikki herself, for any NGOs that we have on the island that can help support the community. Because at the end of the day, we do, we do volunteer work because we love our island and, and the topic that they, uh, that they work on. Because it's not only the nature, but we also have NGOs that work on social aspects. Well, let me, let me get off the script just a little bit and all. Let me ask you something. Tell us a little bit about um, your relationship with your uncles and the things that um, you learned from them about these ecosystems that Carasalo is right in the middle of? Okay, so uh, I grew up very close to the, well, it's an island, but I grew up very close to the water. So I've always been been involved in going on a boat, go fishing, snorkeling, which is the reason why I became a marine biologist, because I just enjoyed loving the ocean. But it's, I say uncles, but not all of them are uncles. It's just a way in the island that we express uh, respect for an older person. So then, we ha I had uncles that uh, would be fishermen on the north coast, and you hear stories from them how they would go out and they would follow birds to reach groups of tunas, or in the bays they uh, they know exactly where they need to find these these conchs. So they have to go look in on seagrass beds, or they know where snappers are residing in, um, uh, in the bays or on the reef. So uh, growing up, I, these things I learned later on in my bachelor's was a lot of them were repetition, they were more scientifically based, but they were still based on knowledge that I've already previously learned from my uncles, which is very interesting because they themselves, they're not scientists, but then they just learned from over years and years of practice from generations before that they learned 
and it's very interesting uh, um, to see it from that way because it truly uh, shows that you can value both knowledge at the same time. It's sort of a very cool yep. uh, relationship I had with my family. Yes, yeah, so you were steeped in, in this tradition of this non-ecological knowledge system that you received and has been passed down for time immemorial, I guess, and all. And it, it sounds like it's had a pretty big impact on your life. And all are are you finding now that you've studied biology and um you know and you're in your master's, is it become easier or, or more difficult to communicate with uh these men of your community that you hold in high esteem for me it's uh it's easy because i grew up around them so i know exactly how i have to talk um and a lot of times local people especially fishermen they don't like when you come in and you act like the boss like you know everything so you by already knowing how they they are how they react i it was a lot easier for me to approach them especially with the project that i've done last year uh, when i was in curious where i had to talk with fishermen so i could collect fish samples like you just have to acknowledge that they also know what they're talking about that you just don't tell them, oh, this is how it's going to be. You just have to be respectful when you approach them and talk. So I can definitely say that before going in my master's, before going even in my bachelor's, I already knew I had, how I had to communicate with the locals. Nice, nice. Let me, let me follow up on that a little bit. What, what, what's your first language? My first language, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I would say two languages. It's Dutch and Pavimento. Um, uh-huh. my writing in Parliament is not as good because as I started school, Dutch was more of the primary language. So, and, uh, starting out, I started out in Dutch and then when I got to high school, that's when Parliament started to get more into play. And then by the end of my high school, um, uh, years, Parliament became an official language. So then I still have a lot of gaps in my Parliament um, literature, but, uh, I would say Dutch and Parliament, but with all my siblings, I mean, I speak English, so it's it, it just depends on it depends on the situation. It depends how, how on about, the situation. Well, how about these men you hold in high esteem? What what language do they generally use? Papimento. Okay, so would you say that the language of the fishery in Carousel is Papimento? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I'll. <laughs> uh, well, that's awesome. That's really neat stuff you just shared but thank you very much for that who's next i have a question for language as well so which languages does dichting unique curacao use to to get talk to people and do their outreach and get give away information so uh currently we have a facebook page that we use it's mostly uh, we send information in Dutch with its, um, let's say, we're doing our daily tasks, um, showing to the public what we're doing. I believe it's mostly in Dutch. But let's, when we're doing outreach programs, for example, at schools, we actually uh, see what type of language um, the, the teachers prefer for us to, to do the outreach in. Certain schools, you have international schools where only do English, but you also have other smaller schools where they do, where they do Pavimento or other schools that prefer Dutch. So we actually accommodate ourselves to maximize the knowledge that we can bring over to the students by seeing which language they're most comfortable with. It's also handy. Yeah, It's handy that most people on the island speak four languages and some even a fifth language if they uh, kept it in high school. That's so cool. That's awesome. 
Can you say um, what is sargassum for you in Papamento? Kikuta sargassum. We also made a video of, of about sargassum actually on YouTube. Um, through, yeah, in Papamento. Um, we were going to put subtitles that's still in the works, but it was mostly in Papamento because the majority of the population would prefer Papamento. And we believe that they are the, the group of people that we have to focus on because at the end of the day, you want to influence locals. We can do it in English, we can do it in Dutch, but a lot of times um, people from abroad already know that this is an issue and we're trying to influence people on our own island and Papimintu, since that is our official local language, we would, we've made a video in Papimintu to make it easier. Well, when, when you, you share that link to that with us and we'll put that up with your bio and all that. Yeah, okay. and, I, and, and I got a question for Mar and Francisco. Who does this guy sound like? You got PL. Who, what kind of, who, who, who says these kind of things that he's saying? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the stuff he says about the ecological knowledge and the science is exactly what you say. It's like a younger version of you, Robbie. He's going to go places, I believe. But he speaks four languages and you, you only speak one. I, I, barely, I barely speak my mother tongue. <laughs> but but I, I know how to order a beer in about a dozen languages. And that, that is important. Yeah. Is yeah. Well, people say, well, you need to know, learn how to ask, for, you know how to ask to go to the bathroom. No, I get that with sign language. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's go back to sargassum. <laughs> so, Javier, tell us how, how is usually sargassum dealt with in Curacao and when you help with removing it, how do you do it and where do you take it and all that stuff? So, um, I'm going to take Asuncion as an example. In Curacao, as I mentioned before, the North Coast gets affected. The main areas that get affected are Sintiores Bay, which is situated more in the northeast part of the island. And then you have uh, Ascension, and you have two other bays in a private area. Uh, it's called Bartolbay and Bocacrani. And uh, those areas um, uh, are harder for us to get to. One, it's on private land, but also we have we work with STCC a lot as um, sea turtle conservation. They, they normally go to that area for sea turtles because that's where the majority of the sea turtles on the north coast are. So then they would deal in that area whenever they get a chance. We mostly focus on Ascension and Sintiores, but we focus our main attention on Ascension, which is the one that you see in the background here, because uh, Sintiores is a bigger bay. Um, so after a while, the sargassum washes away by itself. So there is a type of incurrence that eventually um, moves it all out, or it just sinks to the bottom slowly, moves away because the bay is so big. And uh, but with Ascension, the depth of, of the bay is not as deep. So then there's less current that, that can go in and out. So when the sargassum goes in, it compacts itself within. So then it just comes layer and layer on top of each other. That's why you can see the different colors. You can see the yellow color of the sargassum where it's already decomposing over here. And then you have the, the darker color, which gets dried out by the sun. So after a while, you we even had birds, um, baiting birds that were making nests on top, on top of it. I think they're called the black neck stilts birds they were putting their eggs on top of the sargassum and then they even had their young grow before the sargassum eventually went away so, so then uh, this is yeah? this is sargassum which is on the water right yeah yeah that all that that you see is water it's supposed to be water but it just gets so compacted 
that it's even too dangerous to walk through because um, you get stuck. So then when it gets compacted like this, the work becomes um, harder. Also because we get the government that gets also involved, the GMN, and then they advise against it because of the, <clears throat> the fumes that could come out of the sargasm. So um, but how we normally deal with it is that we organize cleanups. We'll go in, we'll take out sargasm. We've been promoting sargasm. I, when I was studying in Florida International University, I was part of the Alternative Breaks program. And then we would go out, I brought a group of, of American students to Curacao. And we started to, to do, a, we did a workshop where we showed people, hey, you can convert sargasm into fertilizer if you process it in a specific way. So in that way, we wanted to get more locals involved. So then we, people would come there, we'll remove the sargassum, we'll pile them up on, the, on land and people can come and pick it up. Of course, once the problem escalates to become to this scale, then the government needs to get involved. However, sometimes it takes a while to mobilize because there is still not a clear protocol of how and when this needs to be dealt with. And luckily in March, we'll be getting an intern um, from the Netherlands that's gonna be working on such a protocol that we could present to the government and that way making them more efficient at at uh, excavating the sargasm because so of course you have to keep in mind and so in the back of this bay you actually have mangroves and they can't just and then the most ideal situation if you are at the back since the sargasm gets compacted in the back you have to excavate it from there however there's also a lot of plastic there's a whole plastic soup in the back as well that's been accumulated with tires and plastic bag everything and you can there's a section in the back where you can walk on you think you're walking on sand but if you look close it's just microplastic and that's uh it's just pure microplastic i have a picture that i can send to robbie later that you can i have a, a picture that i took it looks like the person's standing on sand and i take a picture closer and it's just microplastic yeah. so as of now we deal it with it as best as we can as when right now the the, the protocol is when it gets bad that's when they start in my opinion, they should be st starting it from the beginning so that you mitigate it. I do understand that there's certain budget constraints that prevent the government from doing it, which is why it's important for NGOs like Stichting Unique Yourself, SDCC, or other NGOs to get involved because we can, we can gather local people to do the work. And so if that, that can be done in that way. So you don't have any like barriers on the ocean to prevent it from arriving to the... So... In this bay, it's very interesting. So the entrance of the bay, since it's the north coast, is very rough compared to the south coast. And they've tried to put a barrier at the, at the beginning of the, the, the bay, and uh, it did not really work. I knew that that wasn't going to work. But yeah, sometimes it's better to try something than nothing at all. Um, but because of the constant waves coming in, the sargassum which is just spilling over. It, hadn't, it, didn't even, yeah, it didn't even slow it down at all. So then it makes it very difficult for this bay to do. And uh, it's interesting for Ascension. So Ascension throughout my uh, years in Stichtenik, so Ascension has changed a lot. So you can see pictures from 2007 that I've taken. I remember there used to be an island in the middle of the bay and then deeper canals on the side. But that whole island was made out of, uh, of uh, trash and tires that I've collected there. And then it collects sand. So then me and my colleagues, we my colleagues and I, we uh, cleaned out the whole island out of all of those trash. But then what that happened then is because there's no stable um, holdfast anymore, everything eroded away and then we get what we see now, just a flat bay. So then there's no 
proper current pushing it out. So in, in theory, you would think that sargassum could go out by itself if the deep the depth was deep enough to allow two currents, the upper current and the undercurrent to come in. And when the sargassum piles up like this, do you get um, dead fish or something like this happening too? Yes. Um, so we've we've done a survey, just an informal survey. We would just take a square area of one meters, and then we'll just see what type of, of uh, organisms we can find in that area and count them. And uh, we would find on the, in these instances in this bay, we'd find a lot of, uh, of dead shrimps. We would find dead mantis shrimps, a lot of sapunculas. And uh, I don't know what the common name for spunkulite is. I think acorn worm it was. So, some type of worm, right? Yeah, it's a, some type of worm. I just don't yeah, know the common a, a, name. Acorn, a, acorn worm is correct. Yeah, yeah we'll find a lot of those. And uh, mostly that's a sign when it's very bad because it means that the sargasm has been there long enough where there's no oxygen in the water anymore and everything there is just dying. We would find, uh, you'll f actually find uh, the sargasso uh, I think it's the, what is it called, batfish, or the one that you see having your background fit right now. The sargasso fish. The yeah, angler fish. The angler fish, yeah, we, we would yeah. find that one a lot. We also find the sargasso crab, the mm -hmm. swimming crab. Yeah, we'll oh, find a lot of that. And sometimes we'll find that sea turtles as well. And that's where SDC also gets involved. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're pretty much a cesspool of death. Uh, <laughs> Oh. Well, Sadly, well, before yeah. we get to, that's a good segue to sea turtles, but I want to ask you a quick question before we, that, that area behind you in, in your background, um, historically, was there mangroves there or has it just always been barren like that? In the area that you see now, um, there mm -hmm. are some black mangroves over here where my hand's passing by, but on the other side right now, it's just a cliff. So it's, it's them. So I can't call this a base. That's why it's called Boca. Boca literally means mouth, which is an entrance. Yeah. So it doesn't have a big area towards the end, like a regular bay, which is the main problem of this, this Boca, because everything just comes in and everything that comes in eventually when the volume increases should be able to go out because of the depth being so low, just compacts in the back. And the only area that there's, that there's um, proper red mangroves are all the way in the back. So Even now area. you can see that the red mangroves have been dying. Um, over the years, because because of all the compacting, of course you get you get the they break down into uh, smaller particles and they become silt and then yeah it becomes mud. But then it cuts the red mangroves off from the water, and they're slowly just dying away. Guys, I hate to hear that. Mm -hmm. So, so um... in April two thousand nineteen, you guys together with other organizations, we're actually able to rescue some sea turtles in this bay. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us Correct. a bit about it? Yeah, so I wasn't um, uh, directly involved in it because I was also busy with my own project. And, uh, but we had rangers from the Stephanie Nuclear South that participated together with SDC and I believe Citro, which is, uh, um, I would say like the coast guard slash lifeguard of the ocean. So then they, they do rescues normally. And they helped collect, um, go because the sargassum, of course, is when it's compact like this, it's very hard to maneuver. So then they use these boards to move around. And then you had spotters looking for sea turtles and they were trying to get the sea turtles out. <clears throat> and then they, uh, once they saved whatever they could save, they, uh, they brought it to SCCC. I believe they also were able to use the tanks at the sea aquarium on Curacao to try to rehabilitate them. And once they were rehabilitated, then they were let go again. 
the safe area on Kyrgyz on the north coast, of course, because that's where they were taken. That's very cool. And if you guys wouldn't be taking away the sargassum, then you would have wouldn't have seen the sea turtles, and they would have probably died. I mean, even if we weren't taking them away, there's always people there, and we have signs there that uh, with our numbers, we have, and then they know sea turtle conservation is also pretty big on the island, so people know. Oh, we have to let them know that there's sea turtles. And during the week, there's normally a guard posted in uh, in that bay, so he always keeps an eye out as well. So, and luckily, uh, um, there is on the, at least on that bay, so on that boca, there's always somebody there in a way. So, uh, and a lot of time when the sargasm comes in, we have more um, monitoring happening. So we know, oh, we get to check it regularly, make sure there's nothing coming in, getting stuck and stuff. Mm -hmm. When is um, the sargassum arriving normally in Curacao? What's the sargassum season? So normally it would run, it could vary by a month, but it's normally April, March. Yeah. And it gets bad, I think, in, I would say, April, going to May. And then it just sits like this till July, depending on the currents. Wow. Yeah, so it stays there pretty long. And, it's, and then to the point where it bothers people that live about 10 to 15 kilometers away from, from that area. Because of and the smell. smell it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that smell yeah, is actually also not very healthy for people. It's not just No, which is the thing. reason that at a certain point we're not allowed to do volunteer work over there anymore because then people can start getting headaches and stuff. Luckily where it's in open air, deadly levels would be if we were to put somebody in a room with all of that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you could still work in the area since it's open open air and there's a lot of wind over there. Mm. But I, it's very unpleasant for people that are not used to it. Because when it starts decomposing and you take your hand and you put it in, it just smells like death. So, so where do you take uh, all the sargassum that you remove from the beach and that you don't use to do fertilizers or anything else? Is it put on land in some pile somewhere or is it there? So I know there was a person that we were in contact with that had a big plot of land where they wanted to put it there so they can start processing it into fertilizer. Um, thing that fell through in the water. So now what happened last year, it was just sitting there until it dries up and then we just throw it out as regular as regular trash. So it gets burned, which is not better, honestly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> nope. So that that's why. Um, I do know that there was a company that was interested in collecting sargasm on Curacao to be able to, to believe Damen, which is a company in the Netherlands. Um, don't quote me on this. I think it's Damon, which is they wanted to bring, wanted to convert the sargassum to biogas. Yes, but, I, I um, met I met the Damon at the sargassum conference, and they are they are trying to make a, a boat to collect sargassum yeah. out at yeah. sea and make bales and then turn it into yeah biogas yeah. and electricity. Yeah, but it's a it's a cool cool venture. The only issue that I see that it doesn't really solve the issue. Of that we see in the background here. <laughs> yes. Well, as I said, sargassum on open water, it's not a problem normally because it it creates a nursery on open water. Mm -hmm. But it's when it's stuck here, that's when it gets the most effect. So this company can profit off by taking it off the open water and not taking it out of the bay, then you still haven't solved anything. 
Maybe they should put their boat right in front of the bay so they can catch yeah, right before it goes into the bay. Yeah, something like that would be possible. Yeah. But yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure these are things that they're thinking about. I think they would rather collect it from a bay like this, a boca like this, instead of having to go on, on the rough seas with such a vessel. Yes. And so I think that's the biggest problem for, for Daman now, is to be able to use that because that boat is mostly flat. And then the waves are very, they have very short intervals between each other and they're very high. So it's, I feel like that will be very practical for them yes, and very expensive. Yeah, you have so much sargassum in this bay that actually collecting it is really easy and getting large yields of it. Mm -hmm. But maybe yeah. maybe they need fresh sargassum for what they're doing. Yep. I don't That's know. That's also the problem, which is where the protocol comes in the government or whatever entity would come into play that they need to, to be able to start early to collect it as it's coming in fresh not letting it start decomposing mm -hmm. yeah also because if you collect it before it reaches the coast you also save all the seagrass and corals that are affected by the sargassum um, mm -hmm. yeah and the mangroves yeah. yep yeah. which is the issue on the north coast <laughs> because of the rough seas it's kind of hard to do that yeah. But there are there are many concepts I know that have been brought forward, and uh, of course concepts are concepts until proven into fact. So then, <laughs> so then we're still we're still not there yet. But uh, people are working on it, and I think it's very positive that there's a lot of local people trying to find solutions as well, because that's what I think it's great. At the end of the day, it's the local people that have to, to be able to deal with it. Yeah, and I also hope that you know, local people can profit from this new resource mm -hmm. because in yeah. the end it's, it's a nuisance, but if you know how to use it, then it can become a resource. Yeah. Kind of like the business model in Barbados. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sargassum could potentially be used to collect saccharide as well. So then if you, if you have a chemical plant that can process sargassum with that, it's very good for the chemical industry. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Do we have any more questions for our friend here today? No. Javier, thanks for hanging out with us. No problem. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> and all and, um, <laughs> and thanks for um, seeing the big, big picture and all this. That's I, I, I especially appreciate that. And all and um, so yeah, thanks for being with us today. T thanks for teaching us a couple of things and and uh, showing us your stuff. So yeah, with that, just uh, have you a good day and, Thank you. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, have a good day. And for those in Europe, have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ciao. Bye-bye. That was pretty nifty. Yes, this was awesome. It was really interesting. Yeah, I actually didn't know that sargassum was such an issue in Curaçao. I thought they only got like minimal um, impact there, but it seems like it's really a big thing. Yes, and it's interesting. Um, he said they are mostly, they're removing it because the areas that are impacted are important for tourism. But unlike other islands, um, it's not based where there's a hotel right next to it. It's based where tourists go to to see the beauty of, of Curaçao. And I think that is that is unique from what we've what I've seen so far that they act they do remove it from beaches that are important for tourism just for sightseeing and for um, 
yeah, seeing the island and experiencing the island. Yeah, which makes it maybe partly a little bit more difficult because no hotel or no big uh, business feels responsible for it, right? And that's why volunteering needs to come into the role of of removing it. And then if it gets too much, the government, of course. But um, yeah, it's interesting also how it's really different depending on where you are in Curaçao. Some areas are super affected, like the bay he was showing us, and others is just a bit that it's easily removed. So it's it's really also about the geography and the topography that makes it's different. <laughs> well, well it, it always is geography, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Did you enjoy the four languages he speaks and know his background with the local communities? Well, you know, I, I talked to him earlier this week about joining our project. And also, I, I knew all that stuff. And um, I was excited when I talked to him. I was like, this guy understands exactly what, you know, we're doing over here at Marine Conservation Without Borders. And I was just tickled to meet him, you know, when, when Francisco sent that email out to us, like, he's got this and this and this. I think you you don't like this guy. So I just sent him, let's talk. And so we had a really nice, uh, we talked for about an hour on WhatsApp this week. And I'm like, wow, he's he's, he's going to do some stuff. He, he, he's, he's, he, his um, way of seeing the world, he, he can he can change things. And, uh, and I was just really happy to talk with him earlier this week and tickled to have him on here today. Yeah, he definitely understands the importance of communicating with the locals in their language and not trying to, you know, make the guidelines in English that no one really cares about, but to really get to the people. Yeah. Yes. And also knowing how to talk to the fishermen and other locals, like not just language-wise, but how do you approach somebody all those manners and things that a lot of scientists or foreigners coming in are lacking because yeah, we, we haven't lived in that community. We haven't interacted with these people before. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in today and learning with us from our guest about sargassum. If you enjoyed our podcast, please consider supporting us financially by becoming a Patreon. For as little as $1 per month, you can support us and take part in an exclusive monthly Zoom happy hour for Patreons, where you can network with our podcast guests and other sargassum enthusiasts. This podcast was produced by Marcel van der Kamp, and your hosts today were Robbie Tingham, Francisca Elmer, and Mar Fernandez. We'll be back next week with another exciting guest. Do you want to find out more about what our guest talked about today? Check our show notes for links to the documents and website. The music in this podcast is from the song Demo Prey by Drizzle Road Rama, an artist from Roatan. You can listen to the full song at the end of this episode. If you enjoy his music, then please follow him on Spotify and YouTube where you can find more of his music. But for now, here is Demo Pray by Drizzle Road Rama. Hey brother, hear me now. Brother dog, know me, understand. Now for them no one be see we get nothing, that's why they my free and always front and star. Now for them no one be see we get nothing, that's why they my free. Now for them my free. Yeah. Free them
a pray. Them a pray me no gain progress, not for them a pray. Them a pray me no reap success, not for them a pray. Them a pray. Them a pray me no gain progress, not for them a pray. They my pray me to reap success So me tell them yeah Rapids is come and me no take that Only if it come from Jah I'll accept that Now for them I put the trust in and give me setback Yo select that Me lamp pull up that Tell some wicked that Bad mind me no fear them Anytime them cheat and chat me no hear them Me dash a few hearts so body queer them Me dash a few hearts so tell them where them Now for them I pray They my pray me in progress, not for them a free Them a free, me to reap success So me tell them yeah Yes, me know me have a lot of fake friends But me never woulda taught me woulda have fake family So me tell them straight, me no trust them Me no trust you and me no trust him Fake friend lost my mind in a real life star Me no rate that star, me no rate that Me real for me woulda bust a million shot in a real life Real, real, real life Not for them a free them a pray me no gain progress, not for them a pray. Them a pray me no reap success, not for them a pray. Them a pray me no gain progress, not for them a pray. Them a pray me no reap success, so me tell them yeah. Life, but they my hate and grudge and creep on mine. They my move like Judas. They my move like Judas. Plus, everybody have a life to live. So, when they give one rash clock, who I try judge me. Let them chit and chat to what them want to say. Cause none of them out there, not feed them. But they my free. They my free, me no gain progress. Not for them, my free. They my free, me no rape success. Not for them a free, they my free me no gain progress. Not for them a free.